Finally got some Stevie Wonder into the movie hour there. At last. Normally we leave it till the end and we just totally run out of time, so I thought I'll, I'll change things around and start with a bit of Stevie Wonder to keep the man happy, because I'm sure, I'm sure yeah. he must be struggling for After money. After his lawyers <laughs> got in touch, we thought we may as well. Yes, um, welcome along the show, Daniel Mumby. Hi, good to be back. Yes, uh, it's time for the movie hour, and whether you like it or not, we're going to talk about nothing but movies for the next hour, because that's what we do. Yeah, for right, um. So let's start things off with the UK's top ten. Okay. Yes, at number ten we have The Warrior's Way. Which is a kind of kung fu slash western epic with Kate Beckinsale. I mean, were you a fan of the Underworld series, the vampire films with her in? That kind of a guilty pleasure, yeah. I think, um, they're complete nonsense and tosh, but you just watch them go, it was alright. Mm. Then they kind of, they seem to have enough money spent on them to not look a bit ropey. I think that they're, they're, they're they're, they're watchable, shall I say. Yeah, I mean, uh, for Michael Sheen running around with his shirt off, I suppose they are watchable, but it, it does look in the same way as a lot of the under, a few of the underworld films, it does look kind of completely ropey and forgettable. I mean, it certainly by the time by next week when Voyager: The Dawn Treader has taken a fair amount of money, it'll be completely out of the box office. So yeah. I think if you have to see a kind of sorcery or kung fu style epic, just wait for the Narnia film. Yeah, although it's not got much martial arts in it, I should point out. One thing, I, one thing that sort of struck me from the the trailer and find out about it is just it's one of these ones that if you're not a fan of CGI and you prefer the old fashioned stunts, avoid this this is just way heavy on the cgi it's mm -hmm. just it's not as heavy as say sky captain in the world tomorrow which was horrifically bad by bring, well, <laughs> yeah that's okay actually i quite like that because oh. largely because of the way they managed to bring olivier back from the dead mm. but it's just it's it doesn't feel real do you know what I mean? It's it's kind of just like an animated film. I mean, I would argue with Sky Captain they kind of did that deliberately, but I do understand mm. your concern about CGI not having weight. Yes. Um, moving on, we've got The Girl Who Kicked the Haunted Nest. Which is the nine. final part of Stieg Larsson's Millennium Trilogy, and by all accounts it's a kind of partial return to form after finally got the back of music out. So, yeah. uh, <laughs> it's a kind of return to f a partial return to form after the second film dropped the ball. It is probably worth seeing just for the performances, and certainly because uh, David Finch is currently remaking The Girl with a Dragon Tattoo with uh, Danny, Daniel Craig and Rooney Mara. Apparently they're shooting it in Sweden, but it's with Swedish accents rather than, you mm. know, actual speaking of the Swedish language. And it's, I mean, the comparison that I would draw, obviously the Fincher film hasn't come out yet, so we can't prejudge it, but it might be a case of, um, have you seen the original Swedish versions of Wallander? I haven't, no. Which was recently remade for BBC4 with Kenneth Branagh in the title role. And I think the Kenneth Branagh versions of Wallander came very close to the original in terms of mood, but there was still a kind of a slightly crowbarred feel to them. And I think that Finch is going to struggle to top the performances in this, but he might make something more cinematic. Yeah, I'm also dubious about people putting accents on. It might be just easier just doing the normal voice, because otherwise that can be such a distraction. I yeah, I mean, certainly, there are... There are cases, I mean, Daniel Craig's quite an interesting example, because he, uh, did you see Defiance, where he had to play a, a Chechen rebel? I watched the first hour until the ex-girlfriend turned off because she was bored, and I was a little bit angry about that, but that, I had to leave that to one side, because yeah. it could, could work lyrically about that. <coughs> yeah. Yeah, but that's an example of somebody doing a very good accent. On yeah. the other hand, if he'd managed to cast Michael Caine, and, you know, when he's trying to do the <laughs> Michigan accent in the cider house, you're like, Michael, just do your own voice. Yeah, it just becomes too far too distracting. I, one thing I didn't realize until I, I, I'll shamelessly just say that I've just read it in Empire, so I'm not claiming to have done any research. Other ones, that's our Not as good, though. Uh, was that this, these three films that the, the original ones that aren't, the original Swedish ones are effectively TV movies. Yeah, um, I've heard and that. that um, basically, the way it works in Sweden is they make the movie, uh, make the TV movies, release the first one in the cinema, and then the rest just they roll them out on TV really quick succession. But because of popularity, they've just released these all around the world. So effectively, it's kind of like someone releasing Midsummer Murders all around the world. <laughs> Maybe it's a bit better than that, but it's uh, it's that same sort of thing. Yeah. Okay. Uh, number eight, we've got Despicable Me, which it, it's. Incredible, it's been in the top ten now for something like nine weeks, and it's really hung on in there despite the fact that Megamind has kind of come out and taken on the same kind of kids' digimation territory. I mean, it's perfectly fine compared to Megamind, it's great, and I dare say there'll now be a couple of sequels. Yep, I can't argue that. I mean, it's got a good voice cast, Steve Carell, and, uh, well, I'll, 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 I'll put it back in for Russell Brand, even though you're not a fan. Well, uh, I'll watch it for Julie Andrews, because she plays Gru's mother in it. And yeah, um, I think it's just... Cursing like a sailor when the cameras are turned off. It's one of these ones about adults, I think you'll, there's, there's enough references in there that you'll enjoy it. Like, there's, there's definite Bond references in, and there's even bits of Lemony Snicket in there. It's just Austin a Powers good, as bit well. Bit of everything, yeah, so... So, yeah, I think it... Don't be put off if you think, oh, God, what am I going to take the kid to say this week? But, never mind. Uh, number seven, 
film which you definitely can't take a kid to see is London Boulevard. Because it's an 18 certificate, as far as I'm aware. Yeah. Um, it's a stylish but ultimately unremarkable gangster film from William Monaghan, who is the guy who wrote uh, Martin Scorsese's The Departed, which was in itself a remake of the Japanese film Internal Affairs. It's not as good as Layer Cake, which we kind of agreed on last week. It's not as good as Sexy Beast, which is still one of Ray Winston's finest performances. It's definitely not in the same league as uh, Gangster Number no. 1 with Malcolm McDowell and Paul Bettany, which is a terrific mm. film. But I think, you know, the performances are decent enough, so if you've got nothing else to do, you might want to catch him. Does it suffer because it doesn't have Danny Dyer in it? <laughs> <laughs> Shouldn't every film uh, about London have Danny Dyer in it? That's the first time I've ever heard the phrase, this film suffered because Danny Dyer <laughs> wasn't in it. <laughs> and what's that other one, Hamatasan or something like that? It's, it's the, the team keep me cropping up in direct-to-DVD films, M2. <laughs> and they're a little uh, double act, which... I, I can't. I, 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 I do find myself watching a lot of Danny Dyer's films. He seems it's not not on purpose. He just seems to be in a lot of them. Um, <laughs> he just keeps coming round to your house saying, oh, <laughs> "This new film, watch it. I'll pay like, you." Yeah, all right, Danny, go on. I, I do find it funny the fact that Danny Dyer's last film, Pimp, only thirty six people paid in the whole of UK yes. to watch. That is genius. It's just they. Surely Danny Dyer's got more friends and family than that. <laughs> and even they didn't go and see it. Let's uh, not tiptoe into slander. So from London, uh, we've got number six, uh, The American. Which is a kind of visually interesting, old-fashioned existential thriller with a good performance by George Clooney. I mean, it is, it is massively cliched and it is essentially a throwback to the great existential thrillers of the 60s and 70s, particularly um, Antonioni's The Passenger, which we'll come on to a little bit when we review The Tourist at, towards the end of the programme. I mean, I think it's, it's worth seeing because Anton Corbin is the guy who made Control and he also has a reputation as a rock photographer. He has, he has a large amount of visual style and invention and it, it might be entertaining, just don't go and expect something that's massively original because it isn't. Yeah, exactly. And if you're expecting the usual charm and wit from, say, Johnny, uh, not Johnny Depp, um, George Clooney You're in, thinking about uh, the tourist again. <laughs> then George Clooney in Oceans 11 to 13, you might be disappointed. Yeah, it's it's one of his kind of darker, offbeat roles. It's been, it's been compared to his um, performance in Steven Soderbergh's remake of Solaris. Did you see that? I haven't seen that one. No, I didn't really. Um, it's it's one of the things. Is that there's a few George Clooney films just have not appealed to me in slice, so I just avoid them. Yeah, fair enough. The, the, the film is quite notable. I mean, Natasha McElhone's very good in it, but otherwise there's not much. Uh, there's certainly not much to put it over on the original. Yeah. Uh, number five, we've got Monsters. Now, there's been some controversy about this over whether or not the publicity campaign for Monsters, which has, you know, the kind of the District 9 logo with the, the walking squid on it and these strange uh, creatures coming out of the woods, whether or not it's marketing it as a very different film. Um, did you see The Road? Uh, I haven't seen that, no, but I'm, uh, I'm, I'm aware of the plot and the... Because the, main, the yeah. main thing, that there was a similar controversy surrounding The Road, which is a, an adaptation of a Cormac McCarthy novel with Viggo Mortensen, directed by John Hilkett. And the thing is that that film is incredibly kind of bleak and downbeat, but the trailer that it was originally marketed with basically made it look like an action film, because mm -hmm. the producers went back and shot a load of trucks blowing up and so forth on the existing you know, roads, yeah. because they thought, well, if it's a, a kind of downbeat thing, it won't pull people in. And I think it's the, there is this whole thing with this that there have been a number of reports of people going into cinemas and watching the film, which is a, essentially a very interesting low-budget road movie, which just happens to have some very interesting CGI in, and actually shouting, where are the monsters? <laughs> I like that. Yes. Is this the, the character's going to turn I've, I've obviously cleaned that up for radio. But, yeah. with, with you in a minute, there's a monster coming up in, a, in the next book. We've got to get through 20 minutes of uh, romantic dialogue first. And, yeah, and people having strange conversations about dolphins yeah. sleeping in water. But, uh, yes. I think, um, well, I, it's, it's probably, there's a lot of, I've, there's several cases that where, where directors hand across their film to the marketing people, which I have to hand up, I do work in marketing, so I'm guilty of this myself, is yes. you've got to kind of make it as appealing as possible, and, yeah, it's, it's, I think it's just the way of the world, it's, it's on the, the necessary evils that we have to, so that these films get out there and get an audience, whether that you can, I think, to be honest, if you go to a film and they're out doing a little bit of research about it, then you kind of deserve what you get. Yeah, but in, in terms of Monsters as, a, as an artistic venture, although that does sound rather pretentious, I do think it's very visually impressive. I think Gareth Edwards has great potential as a director, and it's you know, an independent British film, so go and support it. Yeah, and it's also, I thought it was quite good, that it, well, not good, but it, it's interesting that in the year we had Birkenhair and recently Machete, which didn't chart very highly, that this is coming at number five, which is quite a strong, yeah. especially with the Harry Potter storm, which, sorry, spoiler alert for number one, but... Uh, <laughs> 
but yes, it, I think it's quite good. It's one of these ones that could have possibly went to number nine and then disappeared, but it's, uh, it's doing well. And at number four, we've got Due Date, which I think we've... Yeah, Hangover Part 2 is currently being filmed in Thailand. It's going to be released next summer, so surely you can wait till then. If not, if you're a Robert Downey Jr. completist, go and see it, but otherwise, no excuse. Yeah, it's, uh, it's not his best work, I'll just say that. And number three, we've got Unstoppable. I will defer to you on this one because you've seen it. Yeah, basically it's it's an all-out action film. Tony Scott, director of uh, Top Gun and other brilliantly dramatic films which should have won Oscars. Highly cerebral, <laughs> massively thought-provoking films like Days of Thunder and Domino. Yeah, Denzel Washington is on a good, is on a train, he's after getting hold of a runaway train and stopping it and it's, don't you know much more than that, it's full of little, it's got little comedy bits throughout and it's just top-notch top -notch action, sorry, oh. The music has died. This dramatic time must be Terry Potter time. Um, they must have finally stopped the train. Yeah, <laughs> uh, basically, it's it's just if you just want a ten out of ten action film, go and say it. That's all I've got to say about that. Yeah, I, I mean, can't give me more high praise than that. Yeah, I mean, it's, like you said, it's directed by Tony Scott, who is the kind of less talented brother of Sir Ridley, and um, I think it, like you say, it's it, it's good, kind of disposable, unremarkable fun, and you know, it would have been a lot better if he if someone had given him a tripod. I mean, the only reservations I have is that if this takes money it means that they'll step up the production on Top Gun 2 which is one of the most unnecessary sequels <laughs> we could ever need. Yeah there's quite a gap between the original and now isn't there? Yeah. Never mind. At number two we have Megamind which you could say is a blue despicable me. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. Um, it's like I say massively derivative it's the inst latest instantly dated effort from DreamWorks. What has happened to DreamWorks as a company? They started out with the likes of the first two Shrek films which were kind of very edgy and you know, did the whole thing of poking it at Disney and since then ever since you know, Jeffrey Katzenberg became more involved they've become just incredibly kind of sanitized instantly derivative films which seem to be ripping off Pixar and I just don't understand why Brad Pitt's in this. I think it's um it's definitely the case. One, Pixar's been doing so well that you've got to try and copy them and keep up. Mm -hmm. Secondly, the success of Shrek 1 and 2, they kind of maybe think, oh, we've got to try and recapture that. And maybe it's just the case that they're just trying too hard. Maybe they just focus on a really good story and that will just go from there. Putting in references of gangsters and all sorts of things and they certainly that just leave them one side and focus on a good story. That's all you need. Yeah, I mean, they have had a couple of bits, like How to Train Your Dragon, which wasn't that long ago, and that was pretty good. Mm -hmm. But it's just, when they seem to be throwing everything behind it to make something a hit, it kind of backfires on them. And this is another example of that. Yes, and a number one a little film, a little independent film by the name of Harry Potter. And The Deathly Hallows Part 1, or HP7A, as it's been collectively called. <laughs> I mean, it's fine. There have been lots of people kind of arguing about it. You know, is it boring? Does it stand on its own? Is, is the whole thing about the rise of Voldemort and allegory for fascism. I can't comment on that because I haven't read the books, but I'm sure the film's perfectly fine. Do you want to tell people that Harry dies at the end of this book? <laughs> yeah. Honk! <laughs> yeah, they all die. It was all a dream. He's a she. If you've seen Bed <laughs> yes, it's a ghost. <laughs> yes, if you've seen the ending of Bedazzled, it is a bit like that, but that's to come in the second part, so ooh, advanced spoiler. Yes. Right, what should we do now? I think it's time for the cult movie of the week. Which is the Rocky Horror Picture Show. Indeed. Now, here's the thing. You can't really talk about cult films, because we, we've done a few on this slot so far. We've done things like Flash Gordon, The Bed Sitting Room, They Live Last Week. You can't really talk about cult films without some point coming to Rocky Horror, because it kind of ticks all the boxes of being a genuine cult film. You've got a very unusual storyline or premise. You've got a film which took absolutely no money when it was first released. It's been rehabilitated by legions of devoted fans, and I mean devoted voted for reasons that we'll come on to <laughs> and it's now regarded as a very kind of important if slightly rough and flawed product of its time a little bit of history first before um before i kind of get your uh, first impressions of it. it started out in life as a play called the rocky horror show which was written by richard o'brien whom you probably know more recently as the original host of the crystal maze true uh and uh, he wrote it as a kind of kitsch homage or homage depending on your pronunciation to the kind of science fiction horror B movies of his youth there was a quote on a documentary he did for the the 30th anniversary of the film where he said he wrote it as a means to forget that he was out of work as an actor <laughs> which is no fair enough great way to spend your time it originally played at the Royal Court Theatre in London in 1973 and that version was directed by a guy called Jim Sharman who was a very well regarded Australian stage director who previously helmed the original runs of both Hair and Jesus Christ Superstar so he had a kind of reputation as someone who was at the the kind of cutting edge of what stage musicals could be like. After it uh, toured all over Australia and America, there was the demand for the film version, which um, Sharman 
subsequently directed and it was, I think the film version was produced by um I can't remember his name, but it was the same guy who made the Cheech and Chong films. So there was a kind of low-budget aesthetic on that. The film was made for something like a million pounds or something, and it opened in only one cinema in Los Angeles on its own night. Apparently they had more premieres planned. This was before right. kind of mass opening weekends where you open a film everywhere. And they had to cancel so many of the other premieres because they sold so little tickets. And the film was a complete kind of lukewarm success until uh, someone had 20th century fox had the bright idea of putting it on the midnight movie circuit so it started off at the waverly theater in los angeles on april fool's day 1976 and it's played there once a week ever since which okay. is completely unparalleled <laughs> and there are various cinema you can, particularly in the u.s various cinemas where once a week they will do rocky horror screenings and you will get people dressing up as the characters and putting blood on their face well not real blood but theatrical blood and going along and talking back to the screen god what god. was your sort of familiarity with rocky horror before we decided to talk about this have, um, you, have you seen the film or the stage show or anything like that i've seen parts of the film there yeah, just throughout my life and whatnot and catching up on, on clips of it this week to get some sort of uh, refresh my memory for the show it looks as crazy as a box of monkeys it's uh yes. basically there's a really freaky thing at the start where it's all black and some red lips that does a bit of a prologue and that's just very very weird and it's all it's just campus christmas and it's <laughs> it's, it's very nice link there it's uh i say it's just it just looks it looks a product of a of, of an unstable mind but it's obviously it obviously comes <laughs> well, together it's and it's, and so, it's thought know, through it's but, uh, but if you watch it if if say you were in I say a mental institute and someone wrote that down and think you would go yeah i think he needs to stay here a bit longer but it's, <laughs> well, it, it seems it, it, i say it, it's one of these things that just falls into the category that certain people just absolutely adore and are fanatical yeah the extreme power. well let's let's attempt to impose some kind of order on it by giving you a plot synopsis for people who aren't as familiar with it uh, the story is uh brad majors who's played by um famed stage actor called barry bostwick and uh, janet vice who's played by a very young susan sarandon i think this was actually one of her first film roles uh, they're a newly engaged couple they choose to celebrate their engagement by going to visit their old science teacher called dr everett scott who's played by jonathan adams um on the way to his house they get lost their car breaks down and they have to take shelter in a dark mansion which is off the map in the middle of nowhere and it transpires that in this dark mansion there are strange goings-on occurring to do with transsexual aliens from the planet trans transylvania led by the sweet transvestite himself dr frankenfurter who's played by very own Tim Curry and it does sound completely mad there's no way you can describe Rocky High without it sounding either completely mad or completely silly mm -hmm. and I think for most part that's kind of a good thing if you here's the thing if you're someone who like us two who are kind of obsessed with film and take the idea of cinema very seriously we'll spend a lot of our time kind of trying to convince people to judge whether a film is good or bad based upon more than oh it was fun yeah. you know, would you you'd sympathize with that yeah I think you've, you've kind of just you, some people watch it go, it was, it was all right, and you go, what do you mean it was all right? It, it was the best film of all time, you, need, you, weren't, you, you didn't watch it right. As if, like, but people's experiences is different from person to person. You can't, some, if me and you went to watch a film, we would we experience it completely differently. But yeah. I wouldn't be, I, I, but part of us would be sat there going, why aren't you enjoying this more? <laughs> why aren't <laughs> yeah. you standing up and applauding at this bit? Quite <laughs> <laughs> possibly. Um, but the thing is with Rocky Horror, it's, it's one of those films where if you don't just kind of in the words of the film give yourself over to absolute pleasure if you don't go in saying i want to have fun it just doesn't work and this is kind of reflected with my experience of it because i first saw uh rocky horror on stage when i was about 14 years old we went on the school trip when i was still living in cheshire and i hated it i thought that it was kind of you know lurid vapid didn't make any sense and it basically didn't get the joke it must have been a cleaned up version if there were school kids there was it or no, no full-on stuff and there were people wandering around you know wearing in the kind of hallways wearing leather and not much else but uh i mean you know classic rocky horror stuff so i didn't like the stage show the first time around subsequently at uni i saw another production of it and then saw the film and sort of started to get it and recently i've, I've had a kind of not a conversion experience but i finally sort of got the joke when i saw it again a few you want to see what he's wearing today <laughs> he is coming full bondage gear is disgraceful especially in this weather <laughs> yeah it's freezing out there but i'm not going to start singing for reasons that will become clear 
Now, for film geeks like me, and I dare say you, although I haven't just come on this program to insult you, there are a, there is a kind of certain I'll pleasure. I'll take that on the chin. <laughs> <laughs> I'll accept that. Yeah, there is a certain kind of pleasure in spotting all the films which Rocky Horror owes a debt to, which Rocky Horror owes a debt, and there no because the plot is essentially a kind of a jumble sale of B movie plots. Like we'll have a little bit of this and a little bit of that, and then we'll put that in and do the thing and so forth. So the central plot about Frankenfurter, who's creating this artificial man, that's obviously a lift from Frankenstein, right down to the monster being afraid of fire and mute, except when he's singing, and that's never explained. <laughs> um, there are also clear hints of King Kong in the final scenes when uh, you have Frankenfurter singing, whatever happened to Fairy? And uh, he uh, gets killed by falling off the RKO Tower, which is, in you know, this version, doubles up for the Empire State Building because they couldn't afford the real thing. Uh, there are also little things like uh, cheesy science fiction films like it came from outer space in the original versions of Flash Gordon, which we referenced a few weeks ago. There's a moment where Richard O'Brien playing uh, Frank Averter's servant called Riff Raff comes in with a massively gelled vertical ponytail and a non-existent skirt playing an alien with this strange kind of antimatter ray gun. And now that's classic kind of mm. cheesy B-movie science fiction. There are also really big overtones of the hammer stable uh, because of the gothic architecture, the very kind of red colour palette, and of course the presence of Charles Grey. Are you a Charles Grey fan? Have you seen much of his work? Because I'm a huge fan of his. Uh, no, I'll have to defer you in terms of uh, well, let's his see. Career. Um, he was, he was a kind of reg along with Peter Cushing and Christopher Lee. He was one of the kind of regulars, the Hammer Stable, most famous for his performance in The Devil Rides Out, where he plays someone who's completely possessed and tries to seduce innocent women. Uh, he is also the only actor other than Joe Don Baker to be both a hero and a villain in the Bond series because he plays. Um, one of Tiger Tanaka's colleagues in You Only Live Twice and then turns up as Blofeld in Diamonds of Forever. And famously, he's the Blofeld where there's it's two doubles and it's a very interesting early use of split screen. It's very well done. Uh, he's also in, if you're a fan of Sherlock Holmes, um, uh, particularly the 1980s version with Jeremy Brett, he plays um, Sherlock's older brother, Mycroft, and does it really well. And he just, he has that kind of really sort of suave but slightly grumpy fixed it. And one of the best moments in Rocky Horror is where you have him as the criminologist who narrates the film, dancing the time warp on a table dressed in a cravat and silk waistcoat and doing jazz hands. And you just think, <laughs> yes, you are having a ball and I'm laughing my head up. But despite all these influences, the main thing that the film is kind of lifting off, and O'Brien readily admits this, is The Wizard of Oz. What's your opinion of The Wizard of Oz? Because I'm not its biggest fan. Yeah, it's, uh, I think every, it's, it's grown to such a, because it's so old and the legends have grown around it, I, but when you watch it you think, it's, it's, it's not a 10 out of 10 film. It's I think basically it's, it? its legend has precedes it and the next generations will always be exposed to it because people just assume that it should be good, maybe? People think it is a film that's judged by its reputation yeah. rather than what's actually in it. I mean, yeah. it looks okay, but it's kind of, it, like a lot of L. Frank Baum stuff, it's it's rather sanitised and dull. I, yeah, the, when you watch it, you just, I could just found Dorothy just really annoying. <laughs> the, the one, the second one, is it Return to Oz, where... That's much better. That is With mental, the wheelers. Yeah. Ooh. And all there's all those decapitated heads in a corridor, and that is, that's more like it. I yeah. We watched that when we were school, and that was freaky. Yeah, <laughs> that's, that's, like, a, that's a much better film. I don't think anyone realised that it, what it was when they showed it with a bunch of school kids. Yeah. <laughs> but to drive this back to Rocky Horror, I mean, the idea, the, there are elements of The Wizard of Oz plot which Rocky Horror follows quite closely. I mean, it's the whole idea of people not being in Kansas anymore. You have these this innocent couple, in this case, who are whisked off into a world that they don't understand. Uh, and the, there's, the kind of, there's a kind of in-joke at the end where the house lifts off the ground because the house is actually doubling up as a spaceship, mm. which is sort of a kind of reinterpretation of the whole tornado thing which blows Dorothy both to and from Kansas. There was also an intention originally to shoot the opening section of the film in black and white, in the same way that Wizard of Oz starts off in black and white and then yeah. when they get to Oz it's colour. They originally wanted to shoot it in black and white up until Frankenverter comes on screen, but the studio sort of balked on that because black and white stock was very expensive and so mm. they, they, and rather than just go through the complicated process of draining the colours out, they decided to just have the whole thing. But there are other, other elements of the Wizard of Oz story, quite a, which it kind of subverts, quite apart from the fact that I don't remember the Wizard of Oz having anything like, um, you know, uh, cabaret dancers or transvestites or mad German doctors in magnetically controlled wheelchairs. Although that probably would have made the film a lot more fun. Um, whereas the, the ending of the Wizard of Oz, where Dorothy kind of goes back home and it was either all a dream or everything's fine, here mm. you actually have a proper conclusion where you, with the central character's lives are completely shattered. You know, they've been exposed to all this, this bizarre sexual experimentation and just this 
just weird stuff and there is no going back to kind of whitewashed churches which they start up and there is, there are a couple of people who have written about um the ending of the film where it's it's brad and janet kind of crawling around on the earth trying to find each other saying that that's essentially like a re a reinvention of the fall in genesis with charles gray playing god and i'm not sure whether that's entirely true but you know, we'll see yeah um stretching a point but i think it's an interesting way of looking at it in terms of its, uh, sorry, were you going to say something? No, no, I'll, I'll let, let you carry on. I'll, 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 I've got to, I'll, I'll mention it towards the end. I'll just see if you cover it first. Okay. Uh, in terms of the, the, one of the things the film is famous for is being, um, shall we say, very open with its sexuality. I mean, its sexual politics, if you want to use that phrase, are very liberal in the sense that it, there are a number of different sexual preferences expressed on screen. I mean, Frankenfurter is essentially bisexual, if you want to call it that. But it, it's not a film which kind of makes political points saying, you know, everyone should sleep around and that sort of thing, which we don't condone on this programme, of course. And it... it Do we? No. Uh, no, we don't. No, we don't. Jerry G does. <laughs> no, he doesn't. <laughs> that is as may not be. But... <laughs> so it's not a political film. It isn't a film which encourages kind of sexual vice or sleeping around. And it certainly, if it did, it has a much wittier script than you would expect. I mean, quite apart from the fact that... It, if it was just a sort of trashy film about people walking around in their underwear, then you wouldn't have all this kind of wonderful B-movie dialogue, you know, referencing all, which uh, contains very kind of ornate, elaborate in-jokes. So I think yeah. that there is an intelligence in that the film. That has to be enough substance for, as you say, if it's been playing for every week for the past 30-odd years. Yes. There has to be substance there. Yeah, it's not just an excuse for people to go to the cinema and take their clothes off. Yeah. Um, in terms of the performances, I think it's still Tim Curry's best work. I mean, it, Frankenfurter is such a, an iconic character. He's kind of equal parts bawling child, narcissistic drama queen, sexual sadist and English gentleman. Which, I mean, what else could you want? <laughs> I mean, Tim Curry's always had a very interesting career. I mean, he's, his most famous work other than this is probably his role is the, um, what's the name of his character in Stephen King's It? Something that, it's, it's a clone called, um... Popsy, something like that. I forget. The, the yeah. creepy one which turns into a spider in the end. And he's also in stuff like Fern Gully and so forth. The one which sticks in my mind um, with special with Christmas is his portrayal of the hotel guy in, in Home Alone 2, Lost in New York. Oh, uh, yeah. Absolute genius. Because he plays it very, very camp as well. And there's, there's bits where he sneaks in on the person and it's like, oh, it's... Just, just it'll be on telly this Christmas. Just watch it. He is hilarious on that. Yeah, and go and if go and get Burke and Hare on DVD when it comes out because he has a kind of supporting role of that as a, a shall we say a, a ripe old school anatomist who likes cutting people's feet off. He should be in more stuff, shouldn't he? He should be. Yeah. I mean, he's kind of made some odd choices in his career, but in this, he's absolutely terrific. I mean, he does he does chew the scenery and ham it up, and he's clearly enjoying himself. Mm -hmm. um, so there's that. There's also a very interesting performance from um, Meatloaf, who plays um, Eddie, who's um, Dr. Scott's... Is it nephew? I think it's... it's and he, yes. he, comes in, yeah. he comes in on a motorbike in full letter jacket, crashing through a freezer, sings a song called Hot Patootie, and then gets bludgeoned to death with an axe off-screen, because it's a 15 certificate. <laughs> and that would improve his concerts, wouldn't it? If Meatloaf came on stage and no crowd got to attack him. <laughs> well, there is, a thing, there is a tradition of rock stars kind of bringing some of their stage to a stuff on screen like when alice cooper was in uh, prince of darkness there's an element in his stage show when someone would get stabbed with a bicycle and john carmen just said yeah put it in so he did <laughs> um but in terms of this there is a story that um when um richard o'brien was writing the score for this he deliberately wrote hot patootie which has got loads and loads of very quick kind of verses in it he deliberately wrote it so there'd be more syllables than anyone could pronounce and then meatloaf auditioned and he could sing even more so he had to write every more because if you've seen Harper 2 it's kind of like what my stick bear so that's something but I'm not gonna I'm not gonna treat you to the soundtrack because I then you'd have to kill me there are faults with the film I mean because the plot is a collection of essentially bits from other films played for camp value it's kind of it heaters over the course of the 90 minutes or whether or not you sort of stay with it and if you do find yourself getting bored towards the end after the floor show sequence you will it's very difficult to get back on board mm -hmm. there are also a number of scenes in it which are quite scary in the sense that they're out of context there's a moment when they're sitting around to have uh, dinner and uh, Dr. Scott is singing a song about his nephew basically being a fool. And then Dr. Frankenfurter rips off the tablecloth and underneath is the coffin with Eddie's body in it. <laughs> you think, okay, where did that come from? And, uh, I mean, that would be a good creepy scene on its own, but it's just in the, you know, the context is a bit off. And there are moments in it which 
looking at them now are slightly toe-curling, like the, the touch-me sequence where Susan Sarandon is seduced by the monster and, you know, he kind of puts his hands where he shouldn't and it just doesn't really sort of work. Um, but in terms of, as, as an overall 90-minute, knowingly trashy piece, it's really good fun. It does have a certain amount of legacy in terms of the, 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 it effectively created the modern tradition of talking back to the screen without which you wouldn't have you know the the reinvention of showgirls or xanadu to some extent where all those films have kind of become cult classics and people go on and shout out the lines hang on is this is this responsible for mamma mia uh, very, gonna, gonna, very gonna, indirectly. Am I going to have to track down Richard O'Brien and then say, look what you did? <laughs> I think, no, I don't think he's got that to answer for. <laughs> Quite apart from the fact that he hates Abra, as far as I'm aware. But in terms, of, since we since we brought that onto that, I mean, the music in it is really great. I mean, part, quite apart from the fact that most of the cast, including Meatloaf, are very good singers. Yeah. Um, there's a really kind of... There's just a really kind of pulpy sense to the lyrics, which it doesn't take itself too seriously. But there is a kind of very... That there's a good sense of melody to all of them, and certainly if you get the soundtrack to Rocky Horror, it's it's just a good thing to sort of have in the car late out at night. Yeah, I think basically if, there won't be a single person in the world that won't be familiar with um, the Time Warp. The Time Warp, yeah, that's it, that, it just gets re-released every so often. And I remember when we were at school, it was like it must have got re-released in the early '90s, and it's just yeah, it's it's it's, it's an iconic song which will just live forever. Yeah, it's astounding. Time <laughs> is fleeting. Madness <laughs> takes its toll. Etc. <laughs> I was waiting for you to join in, but you obviously can't be bothered. So, <laughs> to sum up, it's a really interesting piece of kind of knowing trash. It is silly, it is sort of uneven, and it hasn't dated all that well, but if you're looking for a very sort of fun night out with friends, or just want to kick back, it it does its job, and it's really it's really well put together, and it is good fun. I think as well we need to watch it with an open mind because there's a lot of people who will watch it, maybe not a bit, I wouldn't say, say prudish, but might watch it and just go, ooh, that's a bit. Yeah, whoa. I mean, I'll, I'll readily admit that when I first saw it, when I was a bit, of, I was a bit of a puritan when I was, mm. you know, an early teenager. And now, I, now I sort of get the joke. I look back on that and thinking, God, that was stupid. But if you if you're watching, going, oh, oh, no, nah, not, that's not for me. No, I find that sort of thing disgusting. Then you really shouldn't watch it. But if you need you need go open mind and just yeah, you see. Just, just yeah, I mean, treat it as fun. In terms of getting through it, I think if you can sit through the sweet transvestite sequence and the uh, the song in the lab, I think you, I think you'll be all right for the rest of the film. Because mm. other than that, other than that, there's nothing, there's nothing massively outre about the film. Yeah. Uh, also, what I was going to say is, it features the then great Scott, <laughs> which obviously is referenced and said repeatedly in the Back to the Future trilogy. <laughs> So, is that is that exactly where it comes from? I don't know if that, I was just wondering if that was if that was the first time that had been said or if it was a what I just meant when I was watching the show. I was like, oh yeah. That's fine. Yeah. I mean, I don't I don't know how often it's been used in films. I don't I don't think it's a direct. I don't think Back to the Future are directly referencing it. Mm. But I'll have to check that out. But um, but certainly yeah, it, it's one of the interesting things about um, Jonathan Adams' performance in that is um, he originally played the narrator in the uh, the original stage show and he was desperately wanting to get that part again because they had the money they thought well let's go for charles gray because he's a mm. bit more suave and uh, the, one of the funniest moments in the film is when um the rest of the cast are performing the floor show and he's kind of stuck in his wheelchair saying i must not go mad i must not let mm. my mind snap and then one of his legs starts rising <laughs> up and it's got a stocking on it you think okay this is great <laughs> now he's going to get up and dance yeah so I think that's uh, I think we can I think highly we, recommend it to everyone. Yeah, yeah, we've covered that in I think all the detail it deserves. So go see it from the heart of the district. This is Lionheart Radio. I think what we'll do is we'll uh, we'll push on through, break on through to the other side, as the doors once said, and we will go on to this week's new releases. If you're heading to cinema this week and you didn't fancy any of the UK's top ten, uh, basically, if, <laughs> if you're going to one of these big multiplexes. You're going to be bombarded with Harry Potter, but if you don't fancy Harry Potter, here are three alternatives. Can we move on before, just before we come on to that? Yeah. There was a little bit of a story which broke a couple of weeks ago about um, a few people going to screens of Harry Potter where the lights didn't go down properly. Oh. Um, there were some, there were reports uh, in a few London cinemas where basically a lot of. Um, multiplex films where you won't actually get a solid print of it anymore it'll be sent as a digital brick and some of that digital brick actually has coding in about when the lights go down and up All right. and there were reports at some london cinemas that the software had been programmed wrong so 
watching Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows, which is a kind of very drained out, dark film, as you say, mm -hmm. but you couldn't really see it because the lights were still blaring on, so it was like watching it under a street lamp. Yeah. And, yeah, it's so, if you go and see Harry Potter in a multiplex, check with the management first, make sure it's being projected properly, because you don't want to kind of sit through two and a half hours of what is essentially the seventh seal meet carry-on camping in. <laughs> yeah, so I think it's, uh, I've, I've made the mistake of trying to watch Dark Knight this week, and you don't, you don't watch that film in the daylight, because <laughs> the sun, the sun doesn't like films like that. It just bombards the telly, yes. and it just so it was a bad. You can bad almost idea. you can almost imagine like uh, the Dark Knight being a sort of kind of vampire in cinematic form. If you try and watch it in the daylight, it goes no, it doesn't work. It burns. <laughs> Put the light away. Yeah, yeah I think uh, <laughs> I don't know what to say to that. Uh, we'll just go on to the first release, which is somewhere. Which is <clears throat> sorry, I'm kind of losing my voice. The new film from uh, Sophia Sophia Coppola, however you pronounce it, who is the daughter of Francis. Ford Coppola, and famously she turns up a lot in some of his films. She plays, she has a supporting role in Peggy Sue Got Married, which is a comedy with Nicolas Cage in which he's actually quite good. And famously she won a Razzie for her performance in The Godfather Part 3. Yeah, she derailed the whole lot. <laughs> well, essentially, because she didn't have that much to work on, because it was originally going to be played by Renona Ryder, but then she dropped out at the last minute to make Edward Scissorhands, which is probably the best career decision she ever made. And, um, but, I mean, I think, I mean, although it won a Razzie, I mean, where do you stand on Godfather 3 in general? Do you it, it was, it was alright, I think it's basically, it, it had, it had big shoes to fill. Yes. I think, uh, the first one, I prefer the first one to the second one, I'll be honest. Mm -hmm. uh, I know people say that it got better, the better sequel, and that's had the flashbacks with Robert De Niro, but, um, no, I think it's, it's a good, it's a good end, and kind of just, I don't know, I can't remember Al Pacino's character's name in it, but it kind of just rounds him off and just kind of leaves him with that tragic end because he has been such a, what's the, what's the polite word? A not very nice guy. A, such a sod, basically, for the past <laughs> two films, so it kind of gets his come up into the Yeah, end, Michael so Corleone is the, yeah. is the one he was searching for. So yeah, she started off as an actress, won a Razzie for The Godfather Part 3, then decided to become a director. She'd made things like The Virgin Suicides, Lost in Translation, and her most recent film before this was Marie Antoinette with Kirsten Dunst, which wasn't, I wasn't so keen on. Story is, um, Stephen Dorff, who is um, probably best known to me as a, a star of the film called Alone in the Dark, which is an Uwe Boll film, which is absolutely dreadful. He plays a sort of, sort of washed-up second-rate actor, I know, what a stretch, <laughs> who is taking a break from work after breaking his wrist. He's holed up in the Chateau Marmont, which is a famous hotel in California, which was the basis for Hotel California, the Eagles song. Um, he kind of goes through his days rather aimlessly with, you no know, pole dancers drifting in and out of his life doing press for his latest film until his estranged daughter turns up, who's played by Elle Fanning, who is the younger sister of Dakota Fanning, who was in Coraline and so forth, and she's a very interesting young actress. Little production line of young actresses being spewed out by the Fanning family there. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I so know that one. <laughs> she's, she's sort of dropped off by his ex-wife, from whom he's estranged, and surprisingly they get on well. Um, the reviews of this have been quite divided so far. I mean, it won the Golden Lion Award at Venice Film Festival only a couple of weeks ago, and the consensus is either it's a kind of return to form after Marie Antoinette, which, you know, the thing about Sofia Coppola's films is that she doesn't really know how to end them, and the whole thing about Marie Antoinette is she doesn't get her head cut off at the end. Mm. And you just think, come on, that's <laughs> the one bit in the film you've got to do, and you just, oh, fine. So, on the one hand, it could be some people are saying it's kind of returned to form and it is a kind of profound film about you know taking responsibilities and finding yourself and that sort of thing other people have said it's basically navel gazing nonsense and it's completely up itself yeah that's the definite thing of because it's it's focused on wealthy people how much sympathy have you got for their problems especially yes. in today's economic climate you know people have got no jobs and stuff like that and you go oh yeah look at this poor hotel room. where do you stand <laughs> on the squid and the whale I haven't seen it. It's a terrible film, basically. I will avoid it. <laughs> but, that, but that is essentially what you're talking about, essentially taking a bunch of rich, successful people who are completely up themselves and mm. saying, you know, these people have problems. Yeah. But, I mean, there are very few... If, if you're interested in a film which actually does manage to tackle the idea of rich people having problems very well, and you fancy being taken for a ride, go and see Savage Grace with right. Julianne Moore in, which is about the Bakerland family, you know, the the family who made billions from the first plastic mm -hmm. and it follows her kind of incestuous relationship with her son who's played by Eddie Redmayne who was recently in Black Death and it's a really sort of tough film but it does the whole thing of basically arguing you know if you live in a world where you have infinite money and no responsibilities you will essentially go mad and it does that whole thing very well so in terms of somewhere I think it's probably worth seeing because Coppola 
I mean, she has inherited some of her father's visual style at the very least. I mean, if you look at Francis Ford Coppola's best works, like the Godfather trilogy, like the Conversation, like Apocalypse Now, mm -hmm. they are visually overawing, even when there's nothing actually going on on screen. And also, go and watch Rumblefish, which is a very interesting kind of black and white um, film by him. And I think that, you know, on the basis of the performances, because El, I mean, Dakota Fanning's a very interesting actress, so she, again, Elle Fanning might be pretty good. It's it's probably not going to be great, but if you've got nothing else to do and you fancy kicking back and having something languid just wash over you, it might be fine. Where did you stand on Lost in Translation? Because it got so much plaudits, and I did watch it and I just thought, is that it? I, I, it was good, but it wasn't great. Yeah, I mean, I think that I like Bill Murray very much. Oh, definitely. Um, and obviously, Scrooge is going to be on this year because it's always on television at Christmas time, and that's a really good version of the Christmas Carol story. But I've never been a fan of Scarlett Johansson, except for her brief performance in The Prestige, in which she's actually very good. I think that Lost in Translation is fine. It does start to kind of run out of steam, though, and it, it is a little bit sort of, oh, look at these people, aren't they wonderful? Yeah. And yeah. there's only, I mean, I can take some of that, but not in the kind of quantity of Lost in Translation, but it's better than Marianne. I'm just still searching for someone to explain what the, the crucial X factor of it was, if you don't mind that term, um, that made it everyone sort of go, it's brilliant. Or was it just the fact that people went, oh, Bill Murray's finally back and she's made it a half-decent film? Yeah, I mean, Bill Murray's <laughs> an interesting case because he, he's, he's, he's one of these people who's actually taken actual leaves of retirement deliberately to, to go off and like, because I think before he did Lost in Translation, he, he said he'd retired and went off to do something like a university languages course mm. and then went travelling the world and so forth. Apparently his new film with, um, I think it's his new film, with Robert Duvall, in which Robert Duvall is playing uh, somebody who's, who's having his funeral wake before he's buried. No, he's when he's still alive, and that sounds exactly like the Bill Murray sort of presence. And also, he has his cameo in Zombieland, which yeah. has become legendary. So, like I say, I think that it's not going to be as good as Lost in Translation, and that itself does have problems. But it might be a return to form after Marie Antoinette, which was sort of deeply problematic. Yes. Um, right. Chronicles of Narnia. Okay, um, Voyage of the Dawn Treader, to give it its full title, which is the third film in the recent series of Narnia adaptations. Um, did you see the previous two? I saw the first one, and to be honest, I was bored rigid by it, so I had no, I have no real intention to see the other two. Yeah, I remember, because the first film, uh, Lion, the Witch of the Wardrobe, came out when I was uh, in my AS year, and I remember, because back when I was a Guardian reader, oh, those were the days, when uh, Polly Toynbee, their kind of leading columnist, basically went to uh, made the most effort she could to kick seven bells out of it there was that <laughs> there was a really rubbish quote of hers when she was kind of saying like you know christ came to earth and died for our sins did we ask him to it's like shut up you're missing the point and she basically took against the film on the grounds of its 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 a substance and the fact that it was written by c.s lewis rather than anything to do with its execution i mean i think the first film it's sort of Lord of the Rings light, and it's it's okay, but it, and it's directed by the same guy who made the first two Shrek films, so mm -hmm. it does have a certain amount of credibility. But it, no, it's it's nothing remarkable. I think I preferred the Golden Compass. I'm not too convinced on that. I love the stage play versions mm -hmm. of his Dark Materials, but I think Golden Compass was a bit all over the place. Are we going to get a sequel to that or not? No, not as far as I'm aware. Um, but uh, yeah, anyway. um, so. Though Prince Caspian, after Narnia, they tried to kind of go dark and it didn't really work. This version is directed by Michael Apted, who's a, a prolific English filmmaker. He's probably most famous for uh, stuff like The World Is Not Enough, the Pierce Brosnan uh, Bond installment, which is okay, sort of. Ooh, features one of the, it, it's that was Robert Carlyle's great in that film. Yeah, it's just it's it's like the it's like that and Die Another Day. It's littered with so many bad naff jokes that I just I find it hard to actually. It takes us out of the film. I just think oh, I hate. Them. I always I hate wanted James to, Bond. Yeah. I always wanted to have Christmas in Turkey. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's, there's another joke. Yeah, oh, no, I can't even say it. But it's it just you're just like, oh, you're better than that. <laughs> Don't do that. <laughs> Are you thinking about the last line of the film? Yes. Oh yeah, I know the one you mean. <laughs> um, it, it's better than Tomorrow Never Dies, though, because Tomorrow Never Dies was just dull. But he's also done things like The Coal Miner's Daughter and Gorillas in the Mist, surprisingly enough, which about no the diet where Sigourney Weaver plays Diane Fossey, which is an interesting film. So the story, for people who aren't familiar with the Narnia books, and this is, you know, you're getting into the point with the Narnia series where you're getting towards the lesser-known stuff, and of course they're doing them in the order that they were written rather than the order they're supposed to be read. Mm. Um, Peter and Susan have grown up out of the original children, so it's just Edmund and Lucy left, along with their obnoxious cousin Eustace, who is played by Will Poulter, who's one of the kids out of Son of Rambo. Have you seen Son of Rambo? Yeah. Terrific children's film. Um, also starring Bill Milner, who's a great child actor. So they return to Narnia by going through a painting of a, a ship, and they go on a quest to stop this evil mist and they have to kind of go 
on a quest to find seven swords and so forth. I think Tilda Swinton turns up briefly again in this one. She was famously the White Witch in the first film. She's she been really featured heavily on the market, for it, I've noticed. Yeah, because it's, it's not the White Witch itself, it's a kind of spirit version of her, yeah. isn't it? Something like that. Here's the thing, the f like I said, the first two Narnia films were quite sort of good. I mean, I, I like the first one, but that's largely because I'm a fan of the book and the, the early kind of 80s um, TV adaptation of it, where you have walking, talking beavers and very bad special effects. That, yeah, that, I remember that being, I preferred that to the film. Mm. Definitely. It was just, I suppose because it was part of the childhood and stuff like that. Yeah. Definitely. Did prefer that one. Yeah, even though, I mean, the animatronic as oh, yeah. that is quite If I watch it, if I watch it now, I'd probably think this was horrific. But when I was about, how old have I been? About five or six? It was it was fairly spot on at the Yeah, time. and Barbara Kellerman as the White Witch basically shouting all her life, <laughs> How dare you come alone? <laughs> <laughs> so here's the thing. By all accounts, this is kind of what Michael Apted has done is basically come in and tried to make this a bit more sort of anodyne and kid friendly. I mean, all the films are a PG certificate, so you're not gonna get anything, you know, bordering on Harry Potter, shall we say. Mm. And I think it's the the main thing is it's a kind of shame that both Harry Potter and this are in the set and the cinemas at roughly the same time because I think Harry Potter is going to keep on taking money. Definitely. Um, I mean, it's it's going to be sort of I think Dawn Treader as a book is not up there with Lion the Witch in the Wardrobe or Horse and His Boy, which is actually quite an interesting instalment in the Narnia series. So it's it's probably going to be sort of unremarkable. It's fine. There'll be visual things in it which are okay, but it's not worth writing home about. If you're an outsider, just looking there, Voyage of the Dawn Treader and the Deathly Hallows, the phrases which mean absolutely nothing to me, having not read the books, and you just wonder why call it that if there's not really the real. It's not going to hook an audience in. Do you know what I mean? Well, I think it's strange. I think by the time you got to this point in the series, the, in fact, that's a very interesting point because I think both. Harry Potter 7 and Voyage of the Dawn Treader, you, it's a very interesting point that you raise. Mm. Both of those films seem to have been made specifically with the kind of fans in mind, in the sense that there is no sort of previously on Harry Potter kind of recap of yeah. explaining what Horcruxes are or anything like that, because we kind of, it's implied that we know all that by now. Mm. And I think in the same way the Narnia of Voyage of the Dawn Treader has kind of been made with the people who saw the first two in mind, or people who are familiar with the books. Because bear in mind that when the first film came out, it was kind of distributed and picked up by a lot of the Christian uh, groups in America as saying it was this fantastic achievement. Mm -hmm. So I think they know what audience they're playing to and no it's perfectly fine. I mean I think that like I say Dawn Treader is the last of the books with the with the kids in and it's therefore the the, the kind of last one you, before you get into the more esoteric C.S. Lewis novels. So I think I don't think that's a massive problem to mm -hmm. be honest. Okay. Enough. Yeah, that's what, that was a very long-winded answer. But I was just kind of just working it through in my just, head. Uh, just letting that just thought. No, it was a very good point that you raised. The other release of the week, uh, well, there's, there's, there's several other releases, one which you mentioned to me in the email we can't talk about. No, this we, time we can't talk about a Serbian film, partly because it's an 18 certificate, partly because the subject matter is inappropriate. If you were just tuning in, you'd think, what on earth are they doing <laughs> on the radio? But suffice to say, it's terrible. Yes, um, um, but if you want something a bit more friendly, shall we say, audience friendly, you've yes. got The Tourist. Which is an American-backed remake of uh, a French thriller with the thrilling title of Anthony Zimmer. <laughs> Which would kind of lead you to think it was a kind of spy story about someone going around defeating baddies <laughs> with a Zimmer friendly. <laughs> Take that, you boys! <laughs> Who strangely has an American accent. This is directed by, and forgive me if I get this pronunciation wrong, Florian Henkel von Donnersmark. Uh, which trips off I'll the do, tongue. Yeah, um, do. <laughs> he's the guy who directed uh, Das Leben des Zander in the Lives of Others, which won the Best Foreign Language Film Oscar in 2007, beating Pan's Labyrinth. So it's instantly on my dark side because Pan's Labyrinth is an extraordinary film. Definitely. And I mean, The Lives of Others is all right, but it is essentially the conversation goes to East Germany in the 1980s, and the conversation is a much more interesting film about you know it's it's Francis Ford Coppola, Gene Hackman, spying on people through walls and going mad, and there's that wonderful scene at the end. Of where he's he's ripped out all the walls of his house to try and find a bug that isn't there mm. and he consoles himself by playing a saxophone in an empty room and the camera just pans out and it's a really moving final scene mm. um sorry to give the ending away so the story is johnny depp plays a u.s maths teacher called frank who is you know in the midst of a breakup he takes a train journey where he meets um a girl called elise who's played by angelina jolie she says i want you to go to venice and pretend to be someone else and it turns out that her boyfriend or maybe her boyfriend but no he's romantically involved with in some way, is actually a foreign agent who is being pursued by a bunch of gangsters led by a scenery chewing Stephen Burkhoff and Johnny Depp gets mistaken for them and so forth. Here's the thing, if you've seen 
the passenger, Johnny Handsome, frantic or face off. You will sit there for a lot of the duration going, yep, that bit's from that, that bit's from yeah. that, that bit's from that. Um, the comparison with the passenger, which we talked briefly about when we reviewed the American. I mean, the whole idea with that film, which is Michelangelo Antonioni, Jack Nicholson in one of his most interesting performances, it's about the idea of somebody who is a kind of dead end in their lifetime, taking a car on a different identity. But that decision, that kind of one split-second decision of, I'm going to become someone else, ends up getting them into a huge amount of trouble, and in the end, being their downfall. Mm -hmm. And there's loads of films which have kind of used that idea since Antonioni did it. I mean, if, if you think of the American as the passenger with machine guns, then this is like the passenger with machine guns and no brains and more scenes of Angelina Jolie's backside. And indeed, there's a number of scenes in the trailer of her taking her dress off for no reason. Well, you know what the reason is. It's, well, yeah, it's, okay, the, old no reason, it's the old market and people yet again saying, what'll sell this film? Bingo. Let's leave early for the day. <laughs> I mean, apparently there is a scene where, and this kind of defining the film's level of intelligence where the first time Angelina Jolie walks on screen looking for all the world as if she spent five hours in makeup getting the <laughs> hair just so is she's we the camera goes to a security camera which then zooms in on um her backside for no apparent reason you just think okay that's why you made the film it's for that kind of audience here's the thing if if you want a kind of dumb so-called thriller which has all the kind of depth and chemistry of a symbol then the tourist is probably going to be all right but if you go and expecting anything on the par with the French original or it's I mean it's not gonna be as good as the American mm -hmm. I think it's the sort of thing of if you have absolutely no desire to think at the cinema and you want to just kind of kick back and watch two people making money then it's fine but otherwise I don't think there's much to say yeah, about it. Yeah it's 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 kind of the definition of eye kind eye candy I think for the, for the ladies you've got Johnny Depp for the lads you've got Angela Jolie and you've got pretty Venice and all that sort of stuff and it's it's basically if you if you want to turn your brain off just go look at the pretty pretty then yes. you're kind of you're set. Yeah, yeah I mean there was an interesting um, article about because you know Angelina Jolie is kind of a, uh, an, an area of mass speculation in terms of her relationship with Brad Pitt and no we always get stories in you know, our equivalent to the National Enquirer saying oh she's worried about losing her looks and her career's going downhill and there's going to be divorced and so forth none of them are true but she was, should play the child catcher <laughs> shouldn't she lollipops <laughs> yeah Yes. I think that's probably why the caller when she goes on these orphanages. Oh, here comes a child catcher. We only had Madonna right last week. On. That's true, though. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I'll let you carry on. Yeah, um, I get you've thrown me off. <laughs> But, uh, yeah, there was an interesting article in, uh, I think it was Total Film, where they were talking about how there's this strange dichotomy in her career, where on the one hand she does absolute fluff, like this, and Salt to some extent, and the Tomb Raider series, mm -hmm. in which it is essentially, look at me, I'm wonderful. Yeah. But on the other hand, she is capable of doing really great work, like, you know, Hackers, Girl Interrupted, for which she won an Oscar, Changeling, A Mighty Heart. I mean, she is very talented. And I suspect that as she maybe gets a bit older, and as her kind of relationship with Brad Pitt settles down, a little bit more mm -hmm. she might start to drift away from doing this sort of thing because as her looks well not fade and that's a bit unfair but as they you know alter slightly yeah i think there'll be a kind of recognition of actually the serious stuff is where she belongs and i think that you now the tourist it's a very incidental film but in a few years time you might look back on it and think well that was a good kind of place to stop and now we can look at her proper career yeah i think i'll be I think the, the more older they get, the more serious they get. I think, uh, yeah. I think that'll be because she's she's proved herself that if she can do it at an early age, well, early age, you know, ish, she'll only get better. Yeah, although if she turns up in a remake of On Golden Pond with her father, I think things have gone really downhill. <laughs> be worse than being in the remake of Deliverance. <laughs> There we go, and there's a hat-trick of Deliverance references every week. <laughs> <laughs> It'll just be a running thing. We will eventually get round to doing Deliverance at some point. <laughs> and by that you mean the film. Yes, reviewing it, as yes. opposed to actually doing pig noises for an hour. <laughs> Let's move on. Yes. Not the time we had. Yeah, so let's, let's round up that basically, uh, if you want to tell me what the film of the week is, and then we'll just sign off for the week. Well, it's probably somewhere. If you haven't, if you, that's not your sort of thing and you want to see something this week, I suggest you go and see The American in the top ten. Um, but otherwise, it's kind of a low week. Next week's cult film, because it's Christmas, we'll be doing them up at Christmas Carol, so join us for that. Definitely. And I'll say that's all from me for this week. I'm taking an early finish uh, this week, so we'll be back next week. I'll say the movie hour, and then we'll have a bit of, bit of a Christmas special as well. Jerry's here at, 11, at 12 o'clock, sorry, so stay tuned for that. And it's now time for the news, and we'll see you all next week. Bye now. Radio, the voice of Northumberland.